Welcome to the Post-Christian Podcast. Our mission is to make disciples in a post-Christian culture. I'm Eric Bryant, one of the executive pastors at Gateway Church in Austin, author of Not Like Me, and my new book, Fruitful, Becoming the Person God Created You to Be. I'm also providing resources at ericbryant.org. Well, today I'm excited. On this episode, we have Rich Velotis out of New York City, New Life Fellowship. How are you doing, Rich? Eric, man, so good to be with you. I'm doing well. And uh, we didn't share this before we started recording, but I remember meeting you uh, in New York City at Columbia University uh, very briefly for a conference where Erwin McManus and Pete Scazzaro were a part of it. And I was just, this is before I started working at New Life, actually. Oh, wow. And uh, you gave a talk. And anyway, so, man, we go way back, man. We go way back. We do go way back. You know, every time I've been to New York, there are indelible moments etched into my mind. It's like no other place on the planet. Uh, We had all these Angelinos, you know, and then people from all over came to that event. I remember that event very clearly. It was, it was really unique. Uh, And I love, you know, just watching you from afar, the way you've done such an amazing job of reaching all of, you know, your neighbors in terms of like, you're a multiracial church in a, in a world that's trying to push towards homogeneity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think that, I mean, even that ethos, which I think the name of the conference, you know, one of, it the, was, things yeah. I, yeah, one of the things I picked up from Irwin is just uh, the importance of innovation, not for the sake of innovation, but to, to connect to people's hearts. And you've had to do that. We've all had to do that in this world with the pandemic and and the more political division than than most of us have experienced. What has been some of the guiding principles for you these last few years that might help those who are listening? Yeah, you know, the last few years have been very difficult. And our congregation, which is known by many because of my predecessor, Pete, for uh, diving into emotional health and having a, a commute, you know, a commitment to bridging racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. Uh, and yet we were not untouched by the level of uh, hostility and polarization within our community. And so I think as a leader, uh, a few things I learned along the way, uh, especially the last couple of years, one is that the, the primary task of leadership is my uh, paying attention to my own emotional functioning. Uh, it's very easy to think about and reflect on and react to the emotionality and the anxiety and what's happening around me as a leader. You know, what are my people in the church responding to or how are they acting? And certain things need to be, of course, uh, named and boundaries uh, established. But my primary task is to figure out what's going on inside of me. What are my, what's my reaction to whatever telling me about me? What's the anxiety that I'm carrying? To what degree am I living a life of emotionality? Uh, and reactivity as opposed to calm presence. So I think that's that's the first thing that I, I think I've learned. Uh, I, I've also learned a, along the last couple of years that the, the leadership task and the pastoral task is to anticipate cultural conflict and to offer a, a pastoral response to it. And what that basically means for me is uh, I think there are ongoing fractures in our society that are not new, but um, reveal themselves in maybe some new ways uh, or are exacerbated. And so whether we're talking about 
uh, race, whether we're talking about, about political polarization, whether we're talking about uh, sexuality, um, abortion, whatever. There's some big issues that have shown up over the decades in our nation. And as a leader, my job is to uh, be thinking and reflecting on these matters so that when something emerges, I'm not um, uh, responding from a place of reactivity, but from a place of thoughtfulness and prudence. And so when everything happened in 2020 and uh, you know George Floyd was murdered and all the rest, I, I saw a lot of churches that were panicking in terms of how do we respond to all this. And for me, I, I saw that as like, wow, that's um, we, the church as a whole um, uh, or pockets of the church was not really prepared for something like that. And so I think the leadership task is to anticipate uh, cultural conflict and just be ready for a pastoral response. And I had to respond to so many. I wrote about 10 public documents for our church and, out, and outside our church to, to wade through a global pandemic, uh, you know, political upheaval, racial hostility. And uh, I just realized that that is my task um, as a pastor and as a leader of a flock. And uh, as God allows me to speak into the lives of other pastors around our nation. So uh, those, I mean, just, I could keep going. Those are a couple of things that come to mind, Eric. Yeah. You know, I really love how you said that. And it's one of those things that I remember hearing this in seminary, uh, you know, Spurgeon, I think said, hold the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other. Yeah. I've always kind of liked that idea. Uh but but what I think you're saying to me is even more important because I, I probably retweet you more than anyone else. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you have uh, given words uh, to thoughts and feelings that I might have had, but you're also not partisan. Like you really are Jesus focused mm -hmm. and you're you're proactive, not reactive, which I think your book, Deeply Formed Life, may be a, a great resource for those who want to become more responsive and not reactive. Mm -hmm. But but I, I think, you know, the the if you're saying the task of the leader is not to um I mean in essence you're saying we can't just say, hey, it's all about Jesus and I'm going to just ignore the world around me. Yeah. We actually help have to help explain to folks who are definitely in the world and caught up in the world how does Jesus speak into these experiences? Yeah, yeah. And and any beeping you hear in the background, my, for whatever reason, my charger has been bugging recently. So <laughs> no uh, worries. Uh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, you know, I, I do think uh, to to be in the world uh, and not of it is, uh, is about, uh, you know, a, a life of incarnation and a life of contextualization. Mm -hmm. And uh, I am called to live fully in this world uh, recognizing that when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's language about not escapism. It's, it's language about um, incarnation. May, may God's presence, may God's way, may, may the life of Christ find uh, root in, in our world. And yeah, I mean, I, I want to be faithful to Jesus uh, in a way that speaks to the very difficult issues that are tearing people apart and tearing our world apart. And I think that emerges out of deep reflection. I think it emerges out of prayerfulness. Uh, but more, most importantly, I think it, it emerges out of um, a, a prayerful commitment to interior examination. Mm. Uh, because we can have all the principles and all the theology, but if our lives are not marked by this, this kind of prayerful interior examination, 
um, we're not going to model actually what we are trying to proclaim with our lives, which is really, uh, you know, what does it mean to be calm? What does it mean to be non-anxious? What does it mean to be fully present uh, in ways that are not avoiding the hard conversations and difficulties, but in ways that are offering a constructive and, and healing approach to some of the fractures of our society. So, um, yeah, it's it's not easy for sure, but I, but I think that is the leadership task, especially in our day. Well, you've written a new book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, and that might be uh, an antidote to some of the vitriol. <laughs> talk, talk about the message of that book, where it comes uh, from, some of the things we can apply from it. Yeah, the title of that book actually uh, came from a poem by Langston Hughes, the great African-American poet. And Hughes, I, I wrote a poem entitled Tired. And uh, I read it a number of years ago, and I just kept coming back to it over the years. And when it was time to name a title, I thought, I think this is what I want to call it. Uh, and the poem says, he says, I am so tired of waiting. Aren't you for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. And what I love what Hughes does in that poem is he names the longings of our souls and of our society and of our world, that we long for goodness, we long for beauty, we long for kindness. But his way of uh, achieving or at least pursuing goodness, beauty, and kindness um, is actually um, a very, uh, not just contemplative, but it's actually, uh, there's a depth of language. So he says, we actually have to cut the world in two. And that's not language of division. That's language of depth. Hmm. He says, we have to identify what are the worms eating away at our lives and our society that's prohibiting us from goodness, beauty, and kindness. And what I do in the book is I try to lay out what are the worms, first of all, from a more of a theological and formational perspective. There's plenty of ways to identify the worms sociologically and historically, uh, but I do work of theology and formation. And so I identify the worms of sin, powers and principalities, and trauma. I'm not sure how, how good it's going to be for sales to start off a book with sin, but uh, <laughs> that was what I thought was the right approach. Uh, and then from that point on, the question I'm asking is, how do we begin to live into goodness, beauty, and kindness? What does it demand of our lives? And in that section, I write about contemplative prayer, uh, humility, and cultivating calm presence. And then the last section of the book, I'm asking, okay, what does it mean to embody this in our world? Uh, and in that section, I write about um, conflict, forgiveness, and justice. And so it is a, my, it's a holistic treatment uh, certainly not exhaustive, but it's, I think it's holistic, uh, to really get at the individual interpersonal and institutional realities of formation and theology, uh, that can help us live lives that are marked by beauty and goodness and kindness and wholeness. And so, um, yeah, it, it was a, a real treat being able to think on those things and write on it. Well, I look forward to reading it. I, I just, again, I think you come from such a, a reflective and thoughtful place. Uh, and you're on the front lines, you know, in a place that uh, certainly can be very difficult to reach mm -hmm. people and disciple people. I, I kind of have this saying, and I mean, UT says, University of Texas says, what starts here changes the world. And there's mm -hmm. this idea, if we can reach people in very post-Christian Austin, which has about 13% of our city goes to church, mm -hmm. then then we can help people elsewhere. Well, 
far fewer percent uh, go to church and where you live. Talk about kind of reaching that post-Christian person. How are you mobilizing mm. uh, people in your church to engage with people who might think Christianity is a part of the past, or they see it on the news as, as something negative? How are yeah. you kind of re-engaging with folks in that way? Yeah, I, I think my task as a pastor, and it's funny because I think in some ways, um, uh, my, my primary task is to focus on the church being what the church has, Jesus has called the church to be. Mm-hmm. And I think if, uh, if, if we are what Jesus has called us to be, um, that will have many ripple effects into the surrounding world. And, and so if I can get the people, at least in my community, um, to reflect the life of Jesus in their prayerfulness, in their compassion, in their pursuit of justice, uh, in their ability to be calm in a context of reactivity and polarization. If, if we can model something for the world around us, in our families, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, um, I, I think that gives us inroads in ways for the sake of uh, reaching others who don't, might not know Christ. And so my, my task as a pastor is, how do I, um, I, I want people to be culturally astute and aware of what's going on. But the primary um, motivation of my heart is, how do I get people to live a life of deep prayer? How do I get people to um, behold the beauty of Jesus and to allow his life and his words to actually penetrate ours uh, and and hopefully be, um, be a conduit through which his life uh, emerges in our world? Um, how, do we, how do I help people think theologically and robustly from the scriptures around some of the big issues of our day. And what I've discovered, uh, there's lots of people, as you know, Eric, who are at a point of, you know, deconstructing and um, they're throwing away lots of things that have been unhelpful to them. And, uh, and one of the things that I, particularly for an emerging generation, I have a 13 year old daughter who has such a heart for justice And, you know, I get in the car and every time I get in the car, she's like, dad, you know, um, we're harming the environment. I'm thinking, do you want, you want me to take you where we're going to go or not? You know, (laughs) you want to walk 40 miles or you want to just, but she just reminds me we're harming the environment, dad, you know? And, but for her having a sense of whether it's environmental care or stewardship or whether it's uh, racial justice for her, uh, the credibility of the gospel is found in the willingness to uh, pursue right relationships and right structures and right systems. And I have just been reminded, especially of younger generations within our church, that if um, if they don't hear about a Jesus who cares about um, the making right of the world, uh, they don't want to hear about this Jesus. Uh, and so I think for me, thinking through not just prayerfulness and theological reflection and emotional health and interior examination, um, but especially for the emerging generation, how do we think clearly about justice uh, can be very evangelistic in itself. Uh, and I think that's what we try to give ourselves to at New Life. That's so good. I I yeah, love that. And I feel like my hope is the younger generation will right size some of the things that mm. you know my generation and pr- prior didn't but at the yeah. same time there are fewer of them engaged you know we yeah. but but we need to see an end to american churchianity you know yeah. like it's time to 
see the more beautiful, pure message of Jesus coming through. I wanted to ask you about transition from Pete Cazero to you yeah. as pastor. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of older white guys who are leading churches right now. Uh, and some have tried to, you know, make that transition. In fact, here at Gateway in Austin, John Burke mm. uh, announced he's going to become our founding pastor. Carlos Ortiz will take his place as our senior pastor. We're all super yeah. excited about it. What is some advice uh, from your vantage point? What did you guys do well? What would you do differently? Or what would you want every church that's in this process to consider? Yeah, you know, I, I think... Uh, I don't know, and uh, and and I had nothing to do with the architecting of the process. So I, I was invited into it. I don't know if it could have been done any better. Hmm. And so whenever someone asks me, I say, do exactly what we did, and I think you'll be okay. Now, a few things re are required beyond just the architecting and the the, the structure of our system. It requires uh, a level of deep maturity uh, and self awareness. So you you can't put that on a document and expect it just to happen. I mean, that has to be uh, a reality in the, the person who's transitioning out and the person who's transitioning in. In our context, Pete was going to remain on staff for a few years. And we anticipated that. Uh, I anticipated that. Uh, I think I had at that point e enough confidence in my own gifts, uh, as well as an awareness of some of the things that I still needed some coaching in. And Pete had uh, tons of self-awareness around the transition and what that entailed for him. Uh, and so on that front, on the soul part, I mean, he did a lot of work. He was going to a therapist. He was seeing spiritual directors. He was when he would go to a monastery and talk to the head of the, mo the, the monastery. And he, I remember him having a conversation with one guy who was the head of the monastery and then uh, let go of that role and just became a regular monk under the authority of another monk who, and he just, learned from the, the monks and from business leaders. He was going all over the place learning. But the biggest thing was his own soul. And how was he going to grow in self-awareness so that he doesn't um, uh, you know, meddle, uh, so that he doesn't cross a line, a boundary? Uh, so that's the first thing. But we, we did bring in an outside consultant who worked with us for a number of years. And that person, uh, we had our board engaged. We, we had a template of of categories of you know who was doing what but when so who's preaching how many times is pete preaching this year and rich preaching how many times is you know staff meetings and vision and hiring and firing and th things along those lines and it was very clear in terms of who was doing what in given years uh pete and i talked a whole lot during that process and for us it was a four-year process mm -hmm. uh, i was invited into the process in year two uh, by year three, I was leading behind the scenes uh, without any announcement before everyone, but I was leading behind the scenes. And then we announced it 15 months before the actual transition took place. And then October 6, 2013, I just passed my ninth anniversary. Wow. And so next year will be 10 years. Um, we, we stepped into it. But um, we were clear about Pete's job description when he was going to step out of senior pastor and into founding pastor, pastor at large. Um, uh, and I did a lot of interior work. He did a lot of interior work. We talked all the time. We invited an outside consultant. The boards were involved. And, and I'll tell you what, uh, in the nine years that I have been in this role, 
um, there were probably two or three occasions in which maybe Pete and I bumped heads a little bit uh, because, you know, something was going in a direction and his, his anxiety got the best of him in a moment, but it has been amazing. So I'm happy to talk about any of the specifics, Eric, but that's kind of big picture in terms of how it worked out for your process. I don't know if it could have gone any better. I, I literally can't think of anything. And I've been asked this question a lot to go, man, I wish we'd have done that better. Uh, I can't think of it. Well, I think that's amazing, which is part of why I asked you, you know, it was such a seamless (laughs) transition. Uh, I was curious, were there things that you did that helped the, the, the congregation, like on the actual day of, was there like a, a ceremony or something that made it feel more official? Yeah. So uh, 15, well, 15 months before when we announced it, we had a series of town hall meetings uh, because some folks were had questions. Some folks were, you know, Pete's been their pastor for 25 years and they're like, who's this young Puerto Rican guy coming in now? And, uh, and so we had a number of town hall meetings. And I think the congregation felt really served by they, they were served that they heard Pete is going to be there another year and a half in that role. So it didn't feel like it was a quick transition, and the you know the uh, the rug was taken from you know from under them. Uh, the week, the month before the transition, we built up to it. So we invited Gordon McDonald to come in, and Gordon has been a mentor to Pete, and he gave a talk about transitions. Uh, we had Pete's wife Jerry give a talk on uh, what she's learned in 25, 26 years of leadership. Then we had Pete give a message on his four lessons out of 26 years. And then we had uh, a massive party at a a place in Queens where we showed videos and invited old time new lifers and packed out this place. And it was just amazing. So we really celebrated them really well. And then the following week, we had our installation service where a number of pastors were part of it that are friends of, of ours. And, um, and then we had the transition and then Pete, um, you know, disappeared for about three months, I believe it was, which was great because I needed him to leave uh, so that I could lead at least in that space there without having to um, look over at him. And then he came back and he, he understood his role at that point and what was expected of him. So he was just the, the most amazing um, preceding pastor. But those were some of the things that we did to commemorate, to memorialize, uh, to celebrate. And it was truly a communal, you know, church-wide uh, celebration and endeavor. It didn't feel like it was just Rich and Pete. It felt like the entire community was involved. That's beautiful. Well, Rich, thank you for investing in us through your writing, uh, through what you share, you know, in your messages that we can all go and listen to. Uh, newlife.nyc and then richvelodas.com. Is that right? Yeah. Or if they want to check out Instagram or Twitter, that's often where I'm testing out ideas and stuff. And we're talking about my really um, challenging sports teams. uh, (laughs) That's right. Thank you so much, Rich. Really grateful for this time. Thanks, Eric. So good to be with you. Thanks for joining us on the Post-Christian Podcast. More resources available at ericbryant.org.